reading is from 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of to the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, eschatology matters. Eschatology matters. And most of you are out there thinking, Adam, I hope it doesn't matter that much because I have no idea what eschatology is. So let's break it down. Eschatology comes from two Greek words, eschatos, meaning last, and logos, meaning words. So the fancy theological word eschatology means words about the last things. Eschatology is the part of theology that's concerned with the second coming of Jesus Christ, death, judgment, the final destiny of humankind. And church, our eschatology, our understanding of those last things is important. Now, now, some of you are also now saying, whoa, Adam, you're starting this sermon by throwing us in the deep end of the pool. I mean, you usually start wearing a jester's hat or quoting Lord of the Rings or something. Um, But seriously, you know, eschatology is important. And you might be saying, but why? Why would eschatology be important? Why why would it be important what I believe about the last things when I have so many things in front of me right here and now? The now things. So why does it matter what I believe about the last things? How does my understanding of the last things help me to follow Jesus in today's things? And friends, that's actually what the chapter that Julie just read for us is all about. The chapter that Julie read for us, 1 Corinthians 6, is all about that our eschatology, what we believe about the future, affects how we live today. Your understanding of the last things should transform your living of today's things. 
You know, we've already seen, as we've been studying through this letter of 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth is a disaster. It is an utter and absolute mess. I mean, last week, 1 Corinthians 5, we heard that not only was there an incestuous sexual relationship between a man and his mother-in-law, but instead of judging and correcting it, the church was approving and celebrating it. And Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians 5, Judge rightly among yourselves. Deal with the unrepentant sin in your midst. And here in chapter 6, he again is calling the church, Deal with your stuff. You're a mess. Judge rightly among yourself. It seems that what was going on in the church is that people were defrauding one another. They were, they were taking advantage of one another. And most likely, the, the wealthy in the church were using their social or their financial power to somehow take advantage of those who were less powerful. You, you see, the word where it says you're defrauding one another in this passage is the same word that's used in James chapter 5, verse 4, which says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So just like in that case where the wealthy were somehow defrauding or oppressing those that were of lower social class or poorer, we find that that was probably happening here in Corinth because the same theme is going to be talked about again when we get to chapter 11. So there were problems within the church. And in last chapter, Paul said, Hey, church, judge and deal with the sexual sin that's amongst you. And in this chapter, he's saying, Hey, church, judge and deal with the relational sin that is happening amongst you. Persons in the church were taking advantage of one another somehow financially, and it was resulting in lawsuits that were going to court. And Paul says, This shouldn't be. This shouldn't be. He says, you in the church, you're qualified to judge and to deal with this kind of relational sin in your midst. And I want you to notice why Paul believes that. Paul believes it because of his eschatology. Paul's argument is from eschatology, from the last things. Listen to chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 again. He says, when, you have, when, when one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare to go before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's eschatology. And, the, if the, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? Paul says, the saints will judge, the world will judge angels. Now, exactly what this will look like or how this will be, church, is largely a mystery to us. But Paul is actually referring to Jesus' words. Jesus taught his 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. It says, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the point is that at Jesus' second coming, at the end of all things, the people of God somehow participate with Christ in the final day of judgment. But what that means and what that will look like is largely a mystery to us. But Paul uses this point to prove what he's talking about. He says, if God somehow 
is going to make you qualified and qualifies you to judge the world and even angels in the end. Aren't you qualified now to judge trivial cases? Paul's arguing from eschatology. He goes, this is what will be. And if what will be is true, then what about right now? The last thing should impact how you follow Jesus in today's things. Paul writes, Church, if the Lord's qualified you to one day judge angels, then can't you judge and deal with the sin that's in your midst? I mean, ultimately, what's Paul doing? He's reminding the church of who they are. He says, Church, remember who you are, your kingdom people, your saints, your holy ones, so live like it now. I mean, you've probably heard that old business adage, Begin with the end in mind. Paul's saying, think about the end and live now with the end in mind. Eschatology is important. And twice in the opening verses, Paul calls those who are in Christ in Corinth saints. Saints means holy or set apart ones. And Paul reminds the Corinthians that because they're in Jesus Christ, he set them apart. They are holy ones. And because they're God's people... They should start living it. Paul says, in Christ, says, church in Corinth, you're in Christ. Now live your identity in Christ. You are saints, you're holy ones. You'll someday somehow participate in judging the world and angels. So today, live your identity and take seriously and judge the sin that right now is in your midst. And church, this is a profound truth. Eschatology is important because you... You who are in Christ are also saints. You're set-apart ones. You're kingdom people. So, friends, we are to live today in light of what we will be. Church, take your eyes off the past. Take your eyes off the past which you can't change and has been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. You're no longer chained to or defined by your past. You're no longer a slave to fear. Church, take your eyes off the present in which you stumble and you fall and you're subject to frailty and inconsistency. Church, fix your eyes on the future. Your identity is found in who Christ is making you and will make you to be. You know, my son Joshua is taking driver's ed right now. And soon I'm going to be teaching him how to drive. And and like I said to Samuel when I was teaching him, I'm going to say to Joshua, Joshua, fix your eyes on where you want the car to go. Fix your eyes on where you want the car to go. You can't drive by staring in the rearview mirror. You can't drive by looking in the past. And don't fixate on what's immediately in front of you at the moment, the present. Fix your eyes on where you're supposed to go. And Paul writes, Corinthians, you're looking the wrong place. And that's why the car is swerving all over the place. Your eyes are fixed in the wrong place. Fix your eyes on what will be. Fix your eyes on what you're being made to be. Your kingdom people, your saints, your sanctified ones. You will judge the world, so live now as you will be then. Live now as you will be then. Eschatology is important. And Paul actually goes on and sarcastically mocks them again, like we saw in the last passage. There's a lot of sarcasm in this letter. But we find Paul mocking them because they're not doing their job. They're not judging the sin. They don't, I don't feel qualified. I can't. We're not going to call that out. not going to deal with that. Verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? 
I mean, remember the entire first part of this letter that we've seen. They've been boasting to Paul, I am so wise. We are so wise, Paul. We're wiser than you. Remember, it was all about wisdom. And Paul goes, your wisdom is foolishness. You're a bunch of fools. And Paul goes, you all have just spent all this time boasting to me about how wise you are, and you can't find a wise man wise enough to judge the issues that are going on between you, so they have to be drugged into court? You're not so wise, are you? And Paul notes he's concerned that the church in Corinth deal with those things in-house, because as they take one another to court, the world is watching. The world is watching. And look at verse 6. Brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Church, when the world watches us and we're unable to get along with one another, what does that say to the world about us, about Christ, about the gospel? Theologian Francis Schaeffer wrote, But after we've done our best to communicate to a lost world, we still must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. Friends, the greatest proof of Jesus amongst us is the observable love of Christian for Christian. As we sang this morning, with one voice we'll sing to the Lord and with one heart we'll live out His word until the whole world out there sees that the Redeemer has come and He dwells in the presence of his people. Paul asks, how's the whole earth going to see that Christ is among you? That his, his presence is among you if you can't love one another? If you can't deal with your stuff, you're dragging this into court before a watching world. And he asks rhetorically in verse 7, why not just suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? In other words, what's more important to you, your rights or your witness to a watching world? What is more important to you, your rights or your witness before a watching world? And Chestnut Street, as we continue to face a host of controversial issues about which Christians of good faith might hold different positions, that's a good question for each of us to consider. What is more important to me, my rights or our witness before a watching world? Am I going to build my little kingdom or advance Christ's kingdom? Which kingdom am I going to work for? And Paul says to the church in Corinth, the fact that we have to have this conversation at all is a clear sign that something is wrong, guys. I mean, verse 7, he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Paul says, look at yourselves. Never mind that you're airing your dirty laundry before the world. The fact that you have so much undealt with dirty laundry means you're already defeated. You're already compromised. The fact that you're behaving this way in the first place means that you've forgotten who you are. You're defrauding your brothers and your sisters in Christ. You're not operating according to the wisdom of God. You're operating according to the wisdom of the world. You're not concerned at all about God's kingdom. You're fighting over your own little kingdom. Paul says, remember, church, remember who you are. You are kingdom people. You are people who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. So live today according to what you will be tomorrow. Our eschatology is important. 
At the end of all things, when Christ returns and establishes finally, completely, perfectly his kingdom, Paul declares that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. And what does that unrighteousness look like? Look at verses 9 through 10 again. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul adds emphasis here by repeating himself twice. Right at the beginning and right at the end, and then sandwiching all of these in between. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then lists all of these right in the middle. Now, church, this is not to say that we're going to be perfect now. This is not to say that we have to be perfect to enter the kingdom, because none of us is perfect, none of us will be perfect. Until Christ returns, every one of us is going to struggle against sin. But, church, that's the point. Are we struggling against sin, or are we settling into it? Are we struggling against sin, Or are we settling into it? Are we defined by our sins? Or are we defined by Jesus Christ? I want you to notice that in the list that Paul gives us here, every one of those is a noun. It's not that these people commit sins and then repent of them. It's not that they struggle against sins and occasionally fall. Paul is speaking of those people who are defined by their sins. Who have given up on repentance and refuse to turn to God. Sin is not just what they do. It is who they are. And so Paul is writing to those who unrepentantly remain in these sins. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul's writing, he says, Church, you are kingdom people. You're not to be defined by your sins. You are to be defined by your Savior. Don't settle into your sin. Struggle against it. Because remember, you will inherit the kingdom of God. So live accordingly today. Your eschatology is important. Now church, the list that Paul gives us here is not, and it actually should not be controversial or surprising. First he lists the sexually immoral. This translates the Greek word porneia, where we get our word pornography. And in the New Testament, porneia includes any type of sexual activity outside of God's design of a marriage between one man and one woman. It includes not just what you do, friends, but what you view. Which is why porneia and pornography are related. And church, let's just put it out there. Most recent surveys coming out, 68% of church-going men view pornography on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years old, 76 search for porn. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say they watch pornography more than once a month. Friends, it's a manifestation of porneia. And it may, in fact, be the most prevalent form of porneia in the church. My brothers and sisters, I bring this up to say, I know your shame. I know your struggle. But this is not who we are. We are kingdom people. Do not settle into this. Struggle against it by the power of His Spirit within you. There is help and there is hope. 
You don't need to struggle alone. And if you are struggling, which I know there are those of you in here struggling, I would love to talk to you later. I would love to point you to resources and those who would walk with you in your struggle. Because this is not who we are to be. We are kingdom people. And Paul's list continues. Idolaters, though, idols or anything that we worship, love, and hold is more important than God. Adulterers, married people who have sex with anyone outside of their spouse. Men who practice homosexuality. I'm going to come back to this one in just a minute. Thieves, I think that one's self-explanatory. Greedy, those who always want more. Paul may, in fact, have the Corinthian lawsuits in mind when he's talking about the greedy. Drunkards, those who are controlled by alcohol and not controlled by the Spirit of God. Revilers, meaning slanderers, those who speak untruth about others. And swindlers, those who cheat other people. Friends, note two things about this list. First, Paul lists what we would consider big sins right alongside sins that we might not consider as serious. And he gives them all equal weight as uncharacteristic of those who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, friends, every one of us is on this list. So don't get arrogant. Secondly, none of the sins on this list should be surprising or controversial to us. However, some are always trying to stir up controversy where there is actually none. Some are trying to call into question what is actually unquestionable. So let's go back to the item on the list that I skipped. On the list, Paul says, those who will not inherit the kingdom of God include men who practice homosexuality. Now, recently, there's been increasingly vehement and desperate attempts to explain this one away and to remove this one from the list. There was released not too long ago a documentary that simply called 1946. 1946. The documentary makes a bold and misleading claim. It asks, what if the word homosexual was never meant to be in the Bible? 1946 is a documentary film that chronicles how the misuse of a single word changed the course of modern history. And the creators of the film chose 1946 because for the first time the English word homosexual appeared in an English translation of the Bible. It was the Revised Standard Version published February 11, 1946. And the word homosexual was found right in the verse that we're studying today. And you might ask, wow, 1946 was the first time this word homosexual appeared in an English translation of the Bible? Then what did 1 Corinthians 9-6 say in English before then? Because the English Bible was around for a long time, before 1946. Well, according to the 1382 Wycliffe Bible, the list of those who will not include the kingdom of God includes neither lectures against kind, neither they that do lechery with men. The 1599 Geneva Bible says, nor wantons, nor buggerers. And the 1611 King James Version says, nor the effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. So it sounds like by 1946, the language desperately was in need of some updating and clarification. Now, friends, this documentary makes a ridiculous claim saying that because the word was never used before 1946, it was an artificial insertion and therefore shouldn't be there. But friends, that's ridiculous. Whether or not a particular word or phrase itself is used in the text is not important. 
The question we should be asking is the concept taught in the text. For example, the word Trinity, which we use all the time, we sing all the time. Friends, the word Trinity is not used once in the Bible. But the concept of the triune God is clearly taught from Genesis to Revelation. The, the word monotheism, the idea that there's only one God, the word monotheism is never used in the Bible, but the concept is clearly taught in the pages of Scripture. So it doesn't matter whether the actual English word is ever used. The question is, is the concept clearly in there? Even if a particular word never appears, the question we should be asking is what behavior is being described in 1 Corinthians 6-9 that is added to this list of behaviors that are not fitting for those who will enter the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to get slightly technical, but this is not hard to understand its importance, so stick with me. Now, there are two Greek words that are used here in 1 Corinthians 6.9. The first word is malakos. And the word is only used three times in the New Testament. The other places it's used, it's actually translated as soft, which is why the King James translates it as effeminate. Now, according to a leading Greek lexicon, it was used in early Greek literature to designate men and boys who allow themselves to be misused homosexually. Malakos designated the passive partner in a homosexual relationship, generally a person of lower social status in the Greco-Roman world. And the second word that's used in 1 Corinthians 6-9 is arsenokoiton, and that designated the active partner in the sexual relationship, usually the person of higher social status. And this word, arsenokoiton, simply is made of two words, Arsen, which means man, and koite, which means bed. And that word koite, when it's used in Romans 9.10, it literally means to conceive. It's used in Hebrews 13.4, koite, the marriage koite, is compared with the adulterer and the sexually immoral. So koite clearly had sexual connotations. So we bring together the word man and the word sex, and our senokoite means literally a man who has sex with other men. And friends, so the point is, whatever the English word you choose to put in your translation, the behavior that is clearly condemned here is men having sex with men. Clearly and unquestionably what the Greek is describing as behavior unfitting for those who will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, some today try to argue that what's being condemned here is the oppressive, violent, or self-delusionary sexual relationships of some. But there's no indication of that. The, the witness of Scripture is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. It's consistently negative towards homosexual behavior. God's design for sexual intimacy has always been between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. And others have tried to argue, well, this is just Paul speaking. I mean, Jesus never condemned homosexual behavior. I'm a red-letter Christian. Friends, there are Bibles, like maybe some of yours, that have the words of Jesus in red letters while all the rest of the text is in black. And that's a personal choice. I don't judge anyone for it. But church, you need to understand, the red letters in the Bible are not more inspired than the black letters. It is heretical, heretical church, to count the words of Jesus as of greater authority than the words of Paul. 
It is heretical to count the red words as of greater worth than the black words. And even if it could be argued that the view itself is not heretical, you will quickly devolve into heresy if you try to hold the words of Jesus above any other words. Jesus, whose words are recorded for us in the Gospel, is the exact same God who inspired all of the other writers of Scripture. When you give more weight to the red words than any other words, you are on the road to heresy because we are essentially saying some Scripture is more inspired than other Scripture. And friends, the Bible teaches us in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture, even the parts that are hard to understand, even the passages that appear to us to be archaic and unenlightened, even the passages that demand of us something that makes us supremely uncomfortable or is blatantly countercultural. All the Bible, the words of Jesus and the words of Paul, they're all authoritative, they're all inspired. So church, I stand in my original contention. This list that Paul gives us here is not controversial or complicated or surprising. Paul's point is simply, these are not behaviors that are fitting of those who will inherit the kingdom of God. Your eschatology is important. And he says, by the power of the Spirit, live today, church, as you're being made to live tomorrow. That is exactly what he calls the church to in the final verse, in verse 11. I love this verse. And such were some of you. Paul's just given this list. Remember, you you read the list. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Friends, and such were some of you. This verse is pure gospel through and through. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Such were some of you. You were not kingdom people. Your lives and your behaviors were not those of kingdom people. You were characterized by sexual immorality, by idolatry, by homosexual behavior, by greed, by lawsuits, by drunkenness, by slander. But then you met Jesus. And you were washed. The verb tense is aorist. It's a past tense referring to a decisive action. Paul says you were washed. He's saying to the church in Corinth, most likely, remember your baptism. You're baptized into Christ. Your sins washed away. When he was speaking before a crowd in Jerusalem in Acts 22, verse 16, he said, And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. Friends, as we sang immediately before the sermon, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile is he, wash all my sins away. You were washed. And Paul writes, you were sanctified. Friends, this verb is also in the past tense. Again, an heiress referring to a decisive action. And that's weird. Because sanctification is actually a process that we're all right now engaged in. Sanctification means to be made holy. And friends, through our life, until Christ returns or He calls us home, you and I are being made holy, increasingly set free from sin's power and influence. But Paul uses it here as a past tense, as if it's a done deal. 
Why? Friends, because of the gospel. Because his eschatology informs his theology. Friends, God's word is so certain and his promises are so true that the future can be declared as a past tense. In other words, God has said it, so it's a done deal. It's as good as done. God has said we will be sanctified and we can begin to live that certainty now. God has said that we will inherit the kingdom of God and we begin to live as kingdom people now. By the power of the resurrection, God is actually dragging the future into the present. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, future realities are invading our present realities. The last days are overlapping our days. Eschatology is important. You are sanctified and you are being sanctified. Sin's power over you is broken and it is being broken. Live no longer defined by your sinful behaviors that I listed, Paul says, because you're kingdom people. As we sang, dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. The worship team was going, saved to sin no more? Saved so I can sin more? No! Saved in order that I may sin no more. Saved in order that I may sin no more. We are being sanctified, saved to sin no more. And finally, he writes, you were justified. Friends, this verb is also past tense because justified means to reckon as righteous, to declare righteous. It's a legal term. And friends, the gospel, the good news is that you and I were guilty. We stood guilty and condemned by our sin. And Christ died for our sins and he rose again so we might be justified. Christ bore the just punishment for our sins upon the cross so that we could be saved, justified, declared, not guilty. And again, as we sang before the sermon today, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all They're guilty stains. Church, you are not guilty. You are justified. And not a stain of your sin remains. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And friends, if you're here or if you're watching online and you've never before responded in faith to this good news, today is the day. I would love to talk to you after the service. Or, if you're online, contact me, pastor at chestnutstreetbaptist.org, because I would love to talk with you and pray with you that this good news might be your news, that you too might enter and become a kingdom person. In church, from this passage, let us learn to live our eschatology. Are you living today as a kingdom person? Are you living today as one who will inherit the kingdom of God? Friends, are there sins from which you still need to be washed? Is there the power and influence of sin in your life which you need to be sanctified from? Are you still carrying guilt and not understanding that you are justified? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God, there is no condemnation now. Your sins are washed away and not a stain remains. Church, let us live today what we will one day be.
Eschatology is important. And by the Spirit of God, let us live as those who will one day inherit the kingdom of God. For church, we are to be kingdom people. Let's pray. Father, make us kingdom people. You are making us kingdom people. We will be and we are. The already and the not yet. You're drawing us ever closer. Father, I pray that if there are those listening that don't know the good news of Jesus Christ, that have not received it as their own, that, Lord, you would move them to respond, that you would move them to yourself. And, Lord, that they might be washed, that they might be sanctified, and that they might be justified by your good news. And, Father, I pray for us, your people, your church, that we, that we might be kingdom people who live differently so that the whole world knows the Redeemer has come and that He dwells in the presence of His people. Use us, your people, to declare this gospel power now and forevermore. Amen.